Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Kirk Megu, host of New Books in Politics. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes store or any of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Are you an academic who wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on how to use your intellectual authority to do so at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You'll find the link below. And now, on to this week's episode. My guest today is Douglas Murray, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race, and Identity, published by Bloomsbury Continuum in 2019. Douglas Murray is an author and journalist based in Britain. Murray has been a contributor to The Spectator since 2000 and has been associate editor at the magazine since 2012. He has also written regularly for numerous other outlets, including The Wall Street Journal, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Sun, The Evening Standard, and The New Criterion. He is a regular contributor to National Review and has been a columnist for Standpoint magazine since its founding. He is the author of several New York Times and international bestsellers, including Neoconservatism, Why We Need It, Bloody Sunday, Truths, Lies, and the Savile Inquiry, about the Bloody Sunday Inquiry, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam, and The Madness of Crowds. Welcome, Douglas. Very good to be with you. Yes, uh, glad to have you here. Congratulations on the success of your book. Um, it's Thank been you. doing very well, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I'm pleased to say it's been a bestseller in many countries, and uh, it's uh, always wonderful for a writer when you're read, which isn't always the case. <laughs> that, that's absolutely right. I mean, your book has been out since September 2019, correct? Yeah. I mean, what have been some of the notable reactions to your book so far? Well, in a way, the most interesting reaction is that it's landed so comfortably. Um, uh, the Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity is about uh, the hardest, most sort of difficult, toxic, you might say, certainly controversial social issues of our time. I do them chapter by chapter, gay, uh, women, race and trans. And I, 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 I don't do them in, in an attempt to sort of flame throw or something. I do them in an attempt to pick apart and demonstrate the problems with a reigning orthodoxy that we have or have fallen into. But one of the striking things to me about the reception of the book has been how uh, enormously much warmer uh, it has been than I feared it might be. Um, to sort of paraphrase Lady Bracknell, I mean, uh, or to alter Lady Bracknell, you know, to tread on one landmine might seem a misfortune, but to tread on at least four looks like carelessness. Um, uh, yet, uh, actually, despite jumping around the landmine field of our time, 
Um, I've been so struck by the fact that the reaction has been so so warm, which suggests to me that um, there are many more people out there who want to have sane, reasonable adult discussions, people from right, left, centre, no political standpoint at all, than some of us had feared. And what it suggests, among other things, is that the very vocal and vociferous minority of people who are pushing some of the agendas that I describe in the book uh, um, are certainly a minority and may now indeed be on the back foot. Yes, that's very interesting. Because I mean, one of the things you talk about uh, in the book a lot is the speed of the changes that have been going on. But, but um, perhaps maybe there's a speed of change in the opposite direction. Perhaps the pendulum might be swing, swinging back. I don't know. Has, has right. anything changed, do you think, um, between the time of publication and now? Um, a, a few very positive signs, yes. Um, tiny little incremental things. But uh, I think that the era of people trying to shut down discussion simply by naming it as a phobia of some kind uh, is is coming to something like an end because, you know, we're in an amazing era in communication. And it's true that, as I say, a vociferous minority can make themselves heard disproportionately and can have a disproportionate muting effect. Um, once people see through that, there are so many people now who just, you know, we, we can all find things out for ourselves. Uh, we don't need intermediaries of the media, of the old media, um, and, and much more. And and when people try to find things out for themselves and do find things out for themselves, they discover that issues that are being presented to them as if they were incredibly simple are much more complex than we're pretending in our societies. And that's that's one of the things I try to demonstrate in the book is just let's not lean so hard on these heuristics that we've basically only come up with a few days ago. Let's just be a bit more humble about what we don't know and a bit more assertive about the things that we all do know, or at least all did know until the day before yesterday. Yes, yes. Um, so perhaps um, from what I'm detecting in, in the tone of your voice even and, and the subject of what we're discussing is that um, perhaps you're a bit more optimistic now than when you were actually writing the book. Am I right? Um, well, I mean, the point of the book was to impart is was to pick apart this social justice ideology, this thing that calls itself social justice, which masquerades as social justice and actually causes unbelievable social division uh, by weaponizing identity groupings against each other. Uh, I wanted to demonstrate how it wasn't going to work in order that other people had to spend as little time as possible enmeshed in this um, ideology. And yes, I mean, I am to some extent. Uh, um, I mean, I was quite optimistic when writing the book because as I said there, I just, I didn't think it could hold. Um, I don't think that things are that are visibly contradictory, such as, for instance, the idea that um, gender is a social construct and people can choose to be women and the only people born in the right bodies are trans people who are born in the wrong bodies. Yeah. I, I didn't ever think that would hold because too many people, not least women who comprise 50% of the species, uh, know it not to be the case. Um, and so, yes, and I, I'm very heartened by the fact that um, more and more people, particularly actually women as it happens, are speaking up. It's an enormously positive sign. 
Yeah. Now, a lot of the audience of New Books, uh, the New Books Network, are university um, people, lecturers, and uh, students, and and whatnot. And this is where the origin of much of the social justice ideology emanates from, and, and what you're arguing against. And and if if we want to have a you know a a civilized uh, good faith dialogue with people on the other side. Uh, you know, maybe some of them, you know, well, the well-meaning ones, uh, because there are certainly ones who may not be well-meaning, but the well-meaning ones, um, you know, they would have thought that, you know, this whole movement was to make the world a better and less oppressive place. And perhaps they might be disheartened that uh, the pendulum might be swinging back. Uh, how would you address them? Well, I think it's very important to say that, that, that what we are, I think, or have been going through uh, is, is something that might be thought of as a, an overcorrection. Uh, so, for instance, nobody can or I think nobody sane would deny that there has been and still is some homophobia, for instance, in most societies. I think nobody would deny that uh, women and men have not been equal uh, throughout history. Um, or being treated equally. I think nobody would deny that uh, um, racism hasn't existed and that in America in particular, the, the racial legacies of the past still have enormous repercussions in the modern day. I don't think anyone would deny that. Um, but in the process of trying to correct that, it's possible that we go into something like an overcorrection. And the point then I urge people to think about is how would you know that you have overcorrected for long enough? Who would tell you? Who would lead you back to equal? And what I mean by this is, for instance, and you see this in movements like the whiteness studies overreach, which originated in the American Academy, um, which is to say that this is a, this is a, a very, very clear overreach. Um, all other forms of studies, gay studies, I happen to be gay myself, and uh, I, I think that there was a utility at one point in uh, gay studies because it, it sought to bring out uh, writers and historical figures who may have been to some extent uh, covered over in the past uh, because of their non-heterosexuality. Uh, uh, you could certainly say that black studies has had a role in bringing uh, figures highlighting figures from history who needed to be inserted into the canon where they rightly deserved to be. Uh, and then you get this thing of whiteness studies, which is entirely designed to, quote, problematize whiteness. And this is, this is clearly an attempt uh, to, uh, in some ways, make up for historic racism by turning racism against white people and being racist against white people. It's a clear overreach. And I think a, a good, dis a very good example of something that is absolutely fatal for anybody interested in genuine equality, because anyone interested in genuine equality should know that equality means just being exactly the same as everyone else, being treated exactly the same as everyone else, not, for instance, treating one group of people as better because of something they have no say over, such as sexuality, race, or gender, and treating no group as inherently worse because of that. And so one of the things I just always urge people to do is, is 
uh, is to consider, are, are you absolutely sure, if you're on board with this ideology, that this ideology, which is so prone to the resentful tone, uh, is not actually an ideology which is making things far worse? Yes. Yeah, uh, you know, um, you you mentioned in the book, and, and now that, you know, we're, we're some months into the uh, publication of it, uh, you know, we can discuss uh, the the real world um, unraveling of it, perhaps. But you, you talk about cognitive dissonance, um, the fact that you know people are asked to agree with something they they don't actually believe. You know, they're, mm. they're bullied into you know accepting uh, various positions that that they they cannot you know really accept. But, but you know, and it's it's almost like a, a situation of the the emperor's new clothes, where where you're mm. afraid to say certain things and um now you've mentioned that that it seems that there uh, we agree that there seems to be some sort of retreat i suppose in public discourse but but you know the the let's say the corporate aspect the the universities the Mm. the workplaces which enforce these things um you see any retreat there um, no, I, um, it's, it's quite it's quite important that we don't, of course, get stuck on on universities in this because, um, uh, to some extent, uh, people are turned off by the universities thing because basically most people expect that liberal arts colleges in the U.S. in particular are going to be places which produce crazy and unuseful ideas. You know, I mean, it's sort of. Nobody is surprised if you say there's a crazy idea that's come out of Berkeley. Um, so, you know, it's important to, to stress that the, the problem with this is the spillage over of the last decade in particular uh, of these very untried ideas that have spilt over from elements of the American Academy into the real world, and specifically, I think, into the workplace. This is an absolutely fascinating one, by the way, so-called woke capitalism. And again, it's one that I think people should be instinctively deeply suspicious of. Uh, when you see large multinationals jumping as as um, auditioning-like as possible on the sort of woke gravy train, um, I think people need to question much more. Why might this be happening? And is it a good thing? Um, now, of course, a lot of social justice activists think, hurrah, the uh, the uh, big corporations, the big companies are coming on board with our ideology. I look at it in a different way. And it seems to me that if you look back over the last 12 years since the financial crisis, one of the things that's most striking is uh, the banks and large corporations that that took risks, which at the very least um, contributed to the near crash of the global economy in 2008, um, had a range of things they might have been put through and gone through as a result of that. The cheapest way imaginable for them to try to claw back some respectability is to jump on the new morality that the social justice activists um, purport to be leading. Uh, and let me give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, it's an obvious one uh, with a bank in the UK, I won't name, but which uh, during Pride Month, uh, Gay Pride, LGBTQ plus Pride Month uh, each year now, um, festoons its branches across the UK with the rainbow flag 
and the uh, the logo love happens here. And uh, I reckon that's the cheapest way of, for that bank to try to avoid any responsibility for its own actions in the last uh, two decades uh, is to is to is to glide past the responsibility that they have as an institution and get away with some of their worst potential behavior by saying, look, we're onto all the gay stuff in the biggest imaginable flag-waving way. Let me give you another example. The coffee chain Starbucks. Uh, there are an awful lot of critiques you can make of Starbucks from the terrible quality of their coffee to their tax arrangements. Um, Starbucks has, in recent days, as it happened, jumped on board uh, with uh, a trans children, a, a, a charity that advocates for trans children called Mermaids, a highly controversial trans charity in the UK, and is raising money for them with a special mermaid cookie, uh, 50 pence of which uh, the sale of each one will go to this highly controversial child trans charity. Um, again, what this, what some people would like to think maybe is terrific. We've got Starbucks on the trans wagon now. I think another interpretation might be needing to be put on this, which is no, this is simply the cheapest way Starbucks can come up with to launder its public image. And uh, so there is an inbuilt propulsion to um, companies, large corporations in this era, to do things which uh, are, are exceptionally easy for them, actually, and are demonstrations of an evasion of a bigger responsibility because they've decided to mask any bad behavior with this votive offering to the religion of the time. Yes, yes, I, I think that's an excellent analysis. It's it's something. It's a question I wanted to ask you. In fact, about you know how you explain the alliance between you know the largest corporations in the world and these supposed Marxists. Um, and yes, yeah, so I think that's an that's an uh, excellent and very interesting explanation for that relationship. Um, the you know in fact it, it ally, aligns you with the old left. You know, like uh, George Galloway just. Um, uh, launched a new party, the Workers' Party of Britain, where where they are totally against uh, uh, identity politics because I, this new left, this post-Marxist left that you were talking about with Lachlan and Mouffe and so forth, um, they every identity is allowed except your economic class identity. <laughs> you know, and uh, yes, absolutely yes. convenient, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's it's it's. It's a very interesting phrase, uh, identity politics, because, of course, there is a critique of it you can make, a, a critique of using it in the way that people like me do in, in our critiques of it, which is to say, well, you're simply playing different identities uh, against each other, and it's just you don't like this one. Uh, so, for instance, a, a criticism of people uh, coming from my position is sometimes, well, you know, you... you uh, you don't mind playing nations against each other or, um, you know, a country identity, uh, and indeed you courage it, but uh, you don't like it when, you know, gays are used against straights or, you know, men against women and women against men and so on. 
And there is something in this, of course. Um, and the, one of the questions I have for people about this is, though, is, is, is that since there will always be identity groupings, it's worth working out which are more desirable than others and which ones would appear to cause more uh, friction than peace. Um, I think one of the most dangerous things about the identity politics, as I describe it, is that it categorizes people by immutable characteristics, innate characteristics. That is, things about which, over which they have no control. So, you know, nobody chooses uh, to be born a man or a woman. Nobody, I think, chooses to be gay. Uh, and nobody chooses to be black or to be white. Uh, these are just things that our characteristics were born with and which, uh, um, as I say in the chapter on race, we'd rather hope by now we would at least be sort of moving away from finding them to be in any way the main thing in our lives. Uh, there's an awful lot more we need to be doing with our time uh, working apart from anything else to steal the line from Martin Luther King. Uh, working on the content of our character, for instance. Um, but the identity politics, uh, as I see it, doesn't do that. It, it, it gets us stuck constantly on these characteristics and groups people accordingly. And the problem with that is, of course, is that um, grouping people like that, among other things, doesn't allow anyone to leave. And it doesn't allow anyone to join. And uh, one of the things to do with um, national belonging, at any rate, which, my goodness, we know has its own problems, but one of the things to do with national belonging is, of course, that it can, in its better manifestations, be precisely the unifying factor that a, that a society needs. It's what the late conservative philosopher Roger Scruton described as the, the, the first-person plural of belonging, the we. Who is the we? Um, and uh, so there are different forms of belonging. And uh, class, yes, you're right, is is one of them. I think, I mean, I, I would maybe you wouldn't be surprised to hear this. I would differ from George Galloway's analysis of class politics, uh, not least actually because I think that a lot of this has come about because of the disappearance of class politics, which isn't necessarily to do with anything more sinister simply than the disappearance of class as a signifier of great note in our societies. Yes, yes. I, I guess that that, that debate um, gets us, I suppose, see, the, the old Marxists um, are materialists, and so for them, that, you know, and everything else is a false consciousness and, and designed to mask your material exploitation and so from that hardcore Marxist point of view, um, everything that, that takes away from the, the uh, realization of one's material deprivation, uh, so like uh, your gender, your sexual orientation, your race, um, all these things are false consciousness. So I, I guess that would be the Marxist response to... Yes, the, the, Marxists, the Marxists always had an explanation mm -hmm. for everything other than... The question, why is it that every society you've ever had to run always ended up being a total slum? <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and that's the, that could take us to, to another um, 
point. I, I, there, there are a few um, questions I wanted to raise from various sides, and I, I have to manage the time appropriately mm. because we can go on for hours for, for what I want to talk about. But I think a, a lot of times you've been probably critiqued from the left, let's say, um, and you've had to defend yourself from that side. So why don't we try something else and a, a critique maybe from the right? Um, uh, so, for example, um, there are about this um, alliance between the Marxist social justice warriors and the corporations. There are some mm. who have uh, talked about, and this would be actually a, a sort of anti-capitalist right, a kind of um, a neo-reactionary, um, uh, old conservative uh, right type of thing. Where um, th- this this SJW phenomenon is, is a form of social control through, you know, uh, creating chaos and and uh, and uh, fake identities, shallow group identities versus real historical communities, and and it's it's part of a a mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a corporatist destruction of traditional identities and and traditional communities. Do, do you think there's anything in that critique at all? Uh, the, the corporations are deliberately doing it in order to drive people apart. No, I don't see that because, as I say, I think it's just very clear that they are the followers onto this bandwagon rather than the leaders. Uh, it, it's it's um, it's true that if you, they do it in significant enough numbers uh, uh, and with significant enough economic force, they might be able to do far more than any group of ideologues at uh, a West Coast University. Um, but, but no, I mean, I think they, it's, it's, it's provable that they come to the party mm. late, uh, and therefore are, are clearly not, they didn't come up with right. this themselves. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, um, Goldman Sachs came up with unpacking right. the knapsack, the, uh, one of the central, uh, from the 1980s texts of so-called intersectionality, um, uh, but uh, can it have the effect of driving people apart? Obviously, is that effect magne- uh, magnified e- extraordinarily once it's done by large global corporations? Mm. Obviously, yes. yes. And I, I mean, people have pointed to the, to the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and so forth. But 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 you, you make a yes. good point about, about definitely. By the way, so I should add all of those foundations. There's a fascinating thing about all those foundations. It's a very reliable rule. Every foundation uh, uh, named after a, a large industrialist or other, you know, large capitalist, within a generation or two, always ends up campaigning against precisely the thing that made the wealth that made the foundation possible. It's a totally reliable thing, so that all of these great oil money families. Now you know campaign <laughs> against all fossil exactly, fuels. Exactly. Um, and he, here's another um, sort of critique from from the right about the. Uh, uh, you see, uh, uh, let me explain my critique from the right, because what it seems to me, and and you can um, verify this or, or confirm it or not, um, your argument is is kind of like an argument about um, fighting for liberalism in a sense. You know who are who are the real authoritarians? Who are the real racists? Who are the real freedom lovers? You know, and and that you know the contemporary left has gone too far, and um, and that you're arguing for a kind of uh, I don't know a 19th century liberalism, a classic liberalism, a centrist liberalism, however you wish to, to define it. Um, w- would you 
say that's a, a fair characterization of your position? Uh, a, a more common one I hear in a related critique is uh, you want to go in the same direction as the left, just at a slower right. speed. Um, is that fair? Uh, it's which is it's not an entirely unfair analysis. Uh, what I say is that um, it seems to me that to use a somewhat loaded term in the dialectic of our societies, the way that it ought to work, ordinarily has worked, is that broadly speaking, and again, these categories are becoming somewhat useless, but let's stick with them for the time being, that ordinarily speaking, the left, for instance, will present a social justice um, um, unfairness uh, and will uh, seek redress for it, and the right will oppose it. Um and some people uh, um, think of this differently. My own view on it is that this is a perfectly reasonable war of attrition, whereby the the uh, um, the, the conservative instinct effectively acts as a corrective body to the lunacy that is originally suggested, and that this makes, of course, over time, this means that conservatives are forever fighting the next battle they're going to lose. But it's not quite losing. Uh, it's it's coming to a more uh, a reasonable um, accommodation with a, a with a plausible rights claim. That's what's that's what it's important to remember, with a plausible rights claim. So the the enormous difficulty of what's going on at the moment with the trans issue, which I do the last chapter of my book on and do very carefully, I hope you'll agree, as I try to unpick what is actually happening here and explain it. Where is the reasonable rights claim and where is it totally unreasonable? Um, this needs to be litigated and debated in the public square very, very carefully and openly. And what's so interesting about it at the moment is that the left as well as the right of finding it very nearly impossible to have the discussion that they need to be having because they are being shut down from it. And one of the warnings I put about that is just no good can come from this. If we'd, if we'd insisted that people were, were not allowed to talk about the civil rights movement in America in the 1950s and 60s, the civil rights movement probably wouldn't have been mm -hmm. successful. You know, so I do think that the the the, the dialectic, to reuse mm -hmm. that difficult term, is is both necessary and useful. Yeah, because um, that's an uh, you know it's an important point and, and and certainly a valid one. And you know, I I'd like it because the you know the the more let's say hardcore conservative. I mean, you you I suppose are a neoconservative as you've you've written, which is. Well, I don't really like these labels. I have to say, I find them. I find them exactly. sort of useless. And, because and it describes things to you that may not be uh, right. But 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 if I, I'm just using that shorthand um, for, for uh, just for convenience and, and and where it's inapplicable, let, let's certainly discard with it. But um, uh, um, the you know there is a critique that you know that this where we've reached today, this madness, is inevitable. 
since uh, it's inevitable from the movement in the 1960s when traditional society was was unraveled that that we were definitely going to reach here and and you know some neo reactionaries you know say you know back to the French Revolution you know it was going to inevitably lead here you know that the slippery slope is is real you know um, uh, I. I I, I doubt that that is uh, your position uh, and what would be I, I, my, my understanding from your position is that, you know, you, you, you do think that, you know, well, the French revolution and the enlightenment and, and, you know, that, that liberal, um, you know, birth uh, was a good thing for Western rev- um, civilization. Well, I don't, I, I, I'm not a particular supporter of the French right. revolution, but uh, the, the enlightenment, of mm. course, um, um, and it's it's been the, the greatest gifts that the world has got that uh, um, that reason ended up having such a a, a voice right. in the discussions of recent centuries, of course. Yeah, because um, w- one of the things you you mention in the book as as generative of of the pr- the very problem we're facing is the Leotardian problem of the collapse of all mm. meta narratives that's and, right and which is basically kind of a restatement of what nietzsche talked about the death of god it's, it's basically the same thing and that nihilism yes it's sort of extension of yes, the point. And, yes and that nihilism yeah. is the inevitable result and and so so this is where the old conservative i suppose um criticism uh comes in that uh once you take those traditional mores away we are inevitably going to be seeing this because uh, I, I suppose the reason why I'm harping on this is because uh, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you, and um, in the 1990s when I was uh, in, in university at, at that time, uh, the same culture wars were happening. I mean, C- Camille Paglia was the big, mm-hmm. you know, I love her. She, she you know, she mm-hmm. was she was big on, on the scene at at that point, and um, it, you know, they were talking about date rape, and they were talking about you know. Reparations and the same, the very, very, very same issues, and um, and one, mm. oh, you know, it, it's one wonders: is this sort of an eternal cycle, the pendulum coming back and forth? Or, yeah, I, I'd like to hear your um, your views. No, my own view is 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 that what you've just described is a an extension of something which has been going on for decades. It's part of this spilling out. Uh, of, as I say, a, a small section of academia in America into the wider world and finally into the corporate world. Um, but that's a uh, uh, that that's a, a, a sort of chartable process. I, I I think that what you describe as what what you describe um, when you refer to what I write about Leotard and indeed uh, uh, Nietzsche it, it raises one of the most interesting conundrums, which is that. A critique of this, which Nietzsche saw or foresaw, was that people might try to go round again. Um, now, what I mean with this, with the specific conflict we're going through about where values are rooted at the moment, is that I'm very struck that there is a uh, a, um, a sort of neo-reactionary, you might say, particularly religious expression that is going on in certain countries more than others in the West, uh, which says, yes, we will return to, for instance, uh, um, our Christian roots and so on. But the, the, the bigger problem is the one that Nietzsche saw, which is you can't fake that. 
even if you wanted to. And we're here because history has happened and because a set of discoveries have occurred. And we can't, as I said in my previous book, In Strange Death of Europe, where I, I, I wrote more about the fundamentals of this, we can't unlearn what we've learned. Uh, and this makes a segment of the pushback against, you know, everything from Nietzsche through to the present day to be sort of um, uh, um, futile, really. Because as I say outside of a relatively small number of people, uh, people are not. There is not an argument saying, "Yes, our values are ungrounded, and therefore let us reground them in belief in God." I mean, there are people trying to do bits of that, as I say, but it is it is striking that that is not the cons- the, the main conservative critique of this. And there's a reason for that, which is that they they they, they the people who might do that sense that it is unworkable because they don't believe it themselves. But this is where we get into the true problem of what Nietzsche foresees, which is that we are stuck in this mechanism and we, there is no way out and there's no way out from our, our learning. And uh, this, this is a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand. I, I, th- I think that's... That's right, and, and it's, it's, it doesn't uh, present us with easy answers at, at all, um, you know. And because, see, I, what, I, what I see you doing in, in this book, um, you, you make some, you know, very um, strong arguments and points about, you know, that these issues are not closed, they're not settled about gays, women, race, trans, and, and you, you wonderfully highlight um, uh, you know, hi- highlight various issues as, as to why we still need discussion, why we shouldn't um, shut it down. You know, but uh, you know, in the in the world as uh, as we find ourselves, um, the opponents don't seem to want rational argument. You know, um, they it's they 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 don't want to hear your argument. It, it seems hmm. like and, well, let um, me let me yes, so let, it, let me it, dig it, down yes, if I may into one mm-hmm. of the reasons why of that. Let's go yes. level beneath this. Um, it, it seems to me that the reason for that is is very deep indeed. Um, it is this is what they believe in. This is what they intend to spend their lives doing. They sense that it isn't sufficient, but they don't allow anyone to open up that chasm for them. So. Mm-hmm. Um, those people, it's existential. Yes, those people who have been persuaded erroneously, I think, unwisely, I think, that meaning and purpose in life is primarily found in waging wars of rights acquisitions on your own behalf and on behalf of others who you may not know is a bad conception of how to live a meaningful life. And that there are people who start to intuit this. There is, uh, I might say, a very, there's a very ugly corner of this, but we might as well open it up, which is women, women who realize around the time that they are no longer able to have children, that they were in some very fundamental way lied to by the era. Now, 
you don't want if you are a person in that situation, and it can happen to men as well. But it's it's there's a more there's a closer to the boat one that women have for obvious reasons. Um, they do not want to be told that that they've that actually what they were told the deal was is a deal that isn't true. They don't want to hear that. And what will happen is they will double down and dig down. By the way, it is fascinating work done, among others, by Cass Sunstein and others at Harvard about what happens in our brains when we come across a correction to a fallaciously held view that we have. And it isn't that you say, oh, my gosh, I've been so wrong. It's, as lots of people who've been in long-term relationship or marriages will know, it's that you don't concede, you double down, you hold on to it harder. And uh, I think it's it's clear that many of the people who've adopted this as their purpose and f- source of meaning in life are not going to offer it up because underneath it is a chasm and total personal chaos. I, I think you're absolutely right. It, 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 it delves, you know, it, it, into deep psychology here. I mean, you, you know, if anyone has ever had an, an interaction, you know, with, with this type of uh, opposition, there, there's something deeply psychological going on. Do you see that these, and, these protests, particularly that happen in America, which uh, in places like uh, Seattle and uh, perhaps most famously Portland in recent years, you know, you see these, these people who are screaming at mm-hmm. at enemies who are not actually what they say they are quite often uh yeah. people they have for instance identified as fascists because they need fascists who who may be unpleasant people and and, and worse but but who they they soup up into bigger enemies and scream and, and what you see so often in in these displays are are displays of deep existential meaninglessness I yeah, mean, literally sure. howls, literally howls. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, like when the day of, I can't remember what they call the day of rage when they were all screaming that Trump's re-election. Yes. But you, I, let me see if, if, uh, if I'm right in characterizing your critique of, of the, um, of the SJWs, of, of the, the woke um, people that, you, you essentially see this as as Marxist, correct? Uh, no, no, that, it's a, it's a part of it. It's a part of it, certainly. It's fed into it uh, in the same way that a, a form of sort of red ideology is fed into part of the green movement across the West as well. Uh, but I don't say it's solely responsible for it. Right, right. It's a very significant tributary. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it, to me, again, because I, I, I see this just replaying the, the, the culture wars of the 80s and 90s, Alan Bloom's closing of the American mind, I think is, is very instructive. And, and this is, I, I see it like a Nietzschean power struggle, right? That, that um, and, and just like how Bloom talked about this very paradoxical Nietzscheization of the left, because he, he was not left in any way, uh, shape or form, but, um, but you know, what's there's this revenge fantasy. There's the resentment, and and there's this weird transvaluation of all values from from this leftist point of view. And and yes, it it is existential, as as you are um, you know alluding to. You didn't use that word, but basically, it it, it was um, you know 
it did, so it, it's like this um it's just as as you rightly say it's like a battle for battle's sake Yes, um, yes. Do you want to elaborate on that? Um, by the way, citing Bloom is very interesting because, of course, it, um, there's one aspect of this which, which Bloom, citing Bloom in a way uh, um, uh, counteracts one thing I'm saying, which is that this is getting worse because, of course, uh, what Bloom saw when he was on Cornell was in some ways worse than things we've seen in recent years. I mean, wh when Bloom was teaching at Cornell, you know, he saw a gun being pulled on campus. And he never quite got over it. Actually, I mean, he saw he saw there that 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 what I think of as probably the most crucial conservative with a small c realization, which is how thin the veneer is between order and chaos, between civilization and barbarism. How how near we can always be to to that border um, slipping, eroding, being traversed. And so Bloom Bloom had that. In his day, one of the things he saw about this, of course, was also the Americanization of some of this. I mean, he he has, I think, in the closing of the American Mind, he has that very, very perceptive point that, to some extent, uh, the American um, version of Nietzsche ended up being a form of nihilism, but which was nihilism with a happy ending. It's it's. <laughs> It's an exceptionally perceptive observation, this, that what we are talking about in many of the movements I'm describing in The Madness of Crowds definitely fit into that. These are nihilistic movements that expect a happy ending. Um, and there is something specifically American in that. Uh, it is it is quite different from a form of, for instance, French nihilism, which seeks advocates for and expects no such ending <laughs> exactly exactly yeah uh, so um you know we, we've been talking around um the the core arguments of your book and, and largely just because i, I know you've, you've spoken about it for, for so many times and, and i don't want mm. to, no, to I'm enjoying um, you know bore you with with regurgitating the arguments but but, uh, but, you know, you do have uh, some important um, recommendations and, and solutions. So, mm. and, but to get there, we need to understand what some of your arguments were. So, so why don't you highlight for us some, because I'm sure there would be listeners who, who may not know sure. the, the substance of your argument. Well, the, the main thing is that I say that th this, this ideology that is being tried out everywhere um, has not demonstrated that it can work anywhere that the foundational game of intersectionality is provably wrong on its own terms. Firstly, because none of the groupings are actually stable entities in themselves. For instance, we don't actually know what being gay is. We lean on it increasingly hard in our societies as a source of ethics, meaning, and more, but we don't know what it actually is. We, we pretend to be more sure than we are. Obviously, something very similar is happening with trans, whereas there are things... Can you elaborate on that a little? Yes. Um, that we don't know what gay actually is? We we well. Let me give you the most obvious one. We don't know what causes it. We don't know how it comes about. Um, I find this quite interesting myself because um, leaning on something, the origins of which are still kind of uncertain, is unwise because you may put so much pressure on it that it snaps. Um, there is um, every reason to argue for equal rights. But to, what I describe as happening in recent years 
has been a, effectively an overturning of the stool so that the products of rights become the foundational rights. That is that women's equality, gay equality, racial equality and more come about because of liberal rights. But if you upend the barstool and try to make these products of rights into the origin rights, the foundational rights, the, the, the fundamental rights, you end up with this deeply, deeply unstable structure that we're all perching on at the moment. Because, as I say, we keep pretending we know more about things than we do. And at the same time, paradoxically, on certain of them, particularly to do with relations between men and women, we pretend that we don't know things that we know. So that, for instance, relations between the sexes have been so toxified in the public square in recent years that it's not even possible to say things or has become highly dangerous to say things, which everybody knew to be the case until yesterday. I give an example, which is, um, predatory women. This is such mm -hmm. a well-known thing. It has been a source <laughs> of comedy, of tragedy. It's existed in every genre for millennia. And only now do we have to pretend that no such thing exists, or do we have no place in the culture for referring to it? Um, and uh, this this makes our discussions on these things incredibly difficult to have whilst pretending that we've actually sorted it all out. So I'm urging for, among other things, humility on some of the things that we don't know very much about, uh, particularly on the trans issue, in order that we don't end up snapping the products of rights which we enjoy. Um, uh, 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 Another point about this is I, I, I'm very keen, I, I demonstrate for people to realize this, is that this, this game doesn't work on its own terms because not only are all of these things contradictory and more difficult than we pretend within themselves, but between each other, they are very demonstrably contradictory. For instance, trans rights runs totally against gay rights and it runs very significantly against equal rights for women, as, as I say, an increasing number of gay people and women are starting to notice. Now, that's interesting to me because these things are all presented as if they come in a group. You know, I'm for trans rights. I'm for women's rights. I'm for gay rights. I'm f what, if, what if it's not as straightforward as might that? I also add, might I also add uh, immigration um, from, let's say, Islamic countries where women's rights are, are, are far you know, less than in the West? So you're pro-immigrant and pro-feminist at the same time. Yes, uh, this, is, this, is, this is a whole set of, of at the very least, highly contradictory ideas that are being presented as if they are all on a continuum, all come in an easy one-size-fits-all package. And I think this is... Uh, um, this is something which, as I say, deserves to be critiqued. There's one other thing I'd add on that, which is that the games that we are being invited to play are unwinnable games. Uh, I refer particularly to the, the subsection of this, which is the privilege game, which has become so overwhelming. I heard the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, talking last week uh, at a conference of, of the church about his own privilege and the privilege of people in authority. And, and you know, it's a fascinating, unwinnable game because, as I urge people to remember, there is there is no way 
from one hour to the next of calculating where people actually stand in the privilege hierarchy. We, we, we cannot play the game because we cannot actually know. And being invited to play unwinnable games is, among other things, something which I am against, not just because I, I try to demonstrate why they, they are what I describe, but, but they are, they come at, playing them comes at a massive opportunity cost. Because if a society is, is embroiling itself in playing unwinnable games, we won't get around to things that we ought to be doing or we could be doing or indeed to problems we could be solving. You know, I was speaking with a, with a, a friend the other night uh, who happens to be a, a medic by training. And uh, he said to me, you know, we were discussing this very issue. And he said, you know, we don't even know what we should eat. And it's 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 a very good very striking point it's not the most it's not a meaning issue but it's a very interesting procedural and life issue um if if everybody decided to you know apply their brains to working out actually what for which metabolisms and so on was was the, the optimal diet for instance you know, you, you could certainly save a lot of people. You could save people or give people a, a lot of years. But we don't apply ourselves to all sorts of really quite obvious questions because we're playing unwinnable games such as have you benefited from privilege? Um, you know, how the hell do you know? Yeah, that, that's like, um, what's that famous thing? Uh, did you beat your wife last week? Or, or <laughs> some, yes, some how, when did you last like stop that. beating your wife? Question. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yes. Because, I, I, I mean, this is a thing that, that obviously will get has been thrown at you and, and will continue to be thrown at you by, by critics saying, well, you're exaggerating the problem. You just see it as a problem because you're defending your old privilege. And, and, and this is where the sort of, um, you know, mm. the Nietzsche will to power of, of, you know, the resentment, uh, uh, comes into play. And, and yes, it, it's, it's, it's as if there is no, um, you know, no meeting ground, no, mm. no, no rational place for discussion in good faith. No, I mean, because I mean, among other things, I don't do this, but I could, if such a, if a person were to make such a critique and I hear it occasionally, then I could easily turn it around to them and say, well, you just want power. Mm. You just want power. Yeah. You are asserting your your demands because you want power. Now, th this is a very reductive way to look at people. But when mm. people claim, for instance, to be the most oppressed person in the room, what is it apart from a power grab now? Yes. What is it? Exactly. It's, it's, it's a demand... To be given the megaphone because you're the biggest loser, allegedly. Yes, it, it, it is precisely what what Nietzsche described in the genealogy of morals and and the sheep and the transvaluation. It's it's precisely that. Mm. It, it's precisely that. It's quite amazing. Yeah, so I, and I mean so. So I mean, what we've observed uh, at the beginning, we, we were seeing how. Uh, the pendulum does seem to be swinging back. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some uh, 
some, you know, you, you, your work hasn't been greeted like, say, what happened to Milo Yiannopoulos or Ann Coulter with all these riots in America. Have, have you actually, to, have you toured America? Um, yes. Speaking about I, I, should, I should stress, by the way, sorry, just uh, maybe I'm oversensitive about this, but one reason is that I'm nothing like Milo Yiannopoulos or Ann Coulter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's very right. important. I mean, I, I'm not flamethrowing. I'm genuinely, yes. you know, I'm a thinker. I'm a writer. And I, I, I am, I'm not a partisan. I'm not arguing for a particular point of political view. I'm urging people to join me in thinking more deeply and carefully about building in a system of values to our society which hasn't worked wherever it's been tried, which is almost nowhere. And uh, so... If the reaction isn't uh, as much um, fire, it's because I think I'm taken rather seriously. If I say so myself, I, I'm um, you know I am read and critiqued, and I have you know uh, uh, readers and also you know people who admire my work from across the political spectrum. And that's because I, I'm not going in to just throw grenades around and then leave the room, you know. Uh, my my work consists of a call to moral seriousness apart from anything else and so so that's one reason why it's you know it's it's it lands it lands perhaps more softly as well as the fact as i say that i think that i'm now speaking to a much more receptive audience than existed even five years ago i mean you do at the end of the book present a a list mm. of um very you know, fine, reasonable solutions in your conclusion. Could you go over um, some yes. of what you think are, are the most important? Well, you know, one of the things that I invite people to do is to try to come to a, a more reasonable estimation of the society that we all live in. Uh, I, I'm based in, uh, in the UK, but I'm in a different country every week, uh, somewhere in the world for work. And it's been like that for some years. I get to see an enormous amount of the world. It's one of the great joys of my life, one of the great blessings of the job that I've ended up doing, being a writer. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, one of the things I urge people to do is d d don't present societies where you've never had it better as places where it's never been worse. And I, I say this particularly, I think, to young people in countries like Britain, America, most of Western Europe, certainly, North America, is work out where you actually are historically as well as geographically. And this isn't to say don't ever demand anything more. You know, you've never had it so good. It's not that. It's to say com compare your situation, compare what you're being asked to do with other places and other things. So I say whenever anyone says, you know, we live in the most oppressive, uh, you know, patriarchal, hierarchical, et cetera, et cetera, always ask compared to what, compared to where, compared to when. Because, because apart from anything else, what we might be going through is a consequence of fantastical historical and geographical ignorance by a specific generation, particularly a generation of Americans who just don't know history. 
or geography or anything about the situation that they are in comparative with any other time in history. Yes. I, I would like to add something here from my own perspective because um, I, I mean, I, I did grow up in Canada and I, went to, mm. I did my PhD in the UK and so forth. I'm, uh, my heritage is West Indian and I'm uh, of Indian, South Asian Hindu background. Mm. And, um, and I know that, um, uh, you know, so you have these, these uh, immigrants or first generation people who are so strongly critical of the UK or Canada or mm. the United States, but they, they don't want to go back to their countries of origin because right. <laughs> they instinctively know they want to be in these countries, Yes, but, uh, but they, they present it as, you know, the worst things in the world. And uh, I know, it, a, it, I know yes, I, that's very interesting. You say that because I, I, it happens. I, 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 one of my friends in uh, London is a uh, headmistress and says that, um, if whenever a child is taken back to their country, the, their parents or grandparents' country of origin, they always come back better behaved. And the reason is that they 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 see their first or second cousins and the situation they live in, and they realize their own proximity to that. And therefore, how comparatively lucky they are. And it's a very interesting thing that, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and there, there's there's some sort of performance going on. Yes, um, because you know other and and it it adds because uh, I think. What do you think that performance that, is about? Can I ask? Yeah, it is. Uh, I I think there's there's a huge identity crisis. Mm. Um, uh, and, and people looking for a place because I mean, in my own case, I, I, I experienced exactly what you talked about, but I decided to go back. And even though I wasn't even born in the West Indies and, and all my relatives told me I was crazy. Why would I go back when everybody wants to, you know, go up you know, to these countries? And, uh, it's, you know, I, I had a, a very different, uh, set of, of concerns and values, I, I was very nationalistic and 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 whatnot. Mm. Um, but uh, but you know, but I I have, uh, but I I see I I I see it in the reverse case. I see my second cousin uh, or my cousins and whatnot living in the states, living in Canada or the, even the UK and whatnot. And and I I I see that there's this profound identity crisis. Well, that's certainly um, the case. Yes, that's, you know, you see, I, I, yes. Just go on. Well, what you describe there is a is a belonging problem because, of course, one of the one of the massive mistakes that uh, we've all made in recent decades is the presumption that if, for instance, if if your financial well being, if you're fiscally better off than you were, this covers over all other problems and questions. And it's just not the case. It's true that societally, I mean, going back to what you said about the French Revolution, societally, an awful lot of cracks can be covered over so long as the going is good with the economy, which is one of the reasons, as you know, why I talk a little bit at the beginning of the madness of crowds about what, what the, the delayed impact socially of the 2008 financial crash may have been, um, which is what we're going through. But uh, um, 
what do you describe is is this is this massive papering over of a crack a set of cracks which is just because you have a mobile phone and your grandparents didn't it doesn't mean that you are rooted on this earth and and this is, is what this is why the 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 proffered types of belonging have to be thought about interrogated more deeply than we are willing to do currently you see uh, yeah yeah i i i'd like to just uh, i share a story because i i had the the honor and privilege of launching my book on politics in the house of commons in the uk and um and so when i you know and i was living here i i had already moved and one and so when i i went up to the uk and I have a lot of friends lecturing in universities up there and, and they're all left-wing um you know social justice types um and uh so they they reluctantly had to admit that it was a great honor uh that you know that was uh, that i had and but you know but then they were they, they had this you know kind of lingering thing in the back of their mind and then they would you know, they would tell me but don't you think it's, it's just too british and and i would respond no this is perfect this is exactly what i want i i love it that it's so british and i wish back in trinidad we'd have we would have things that were more trinidadian right and and they were so at a loss because they don't want to go back mm. to their own countries and they resent the countries they're in yes. and and this this is this is a real problem it's it's a, the and, most and it, pre- the, it prevents, it prevents if, if they don't admit that to themselves it prevents good faith dialogue yes. that, that's all they wanted to add yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more um this is why this is why we have to work out what the deeper roots of meaning ought to be and what the most legitimate forms of it consist of and you know i have a shorthand for this when i say to people sometimes if you discover you're gay it's not a replacement for religion you know <laughs> gay it's a category ever error to make that mistake it's not going to be the source of meaning in your life it'll be one of your sources of identity potentially to, to a greater or lesser extent but it's not going to give you meaning in your life so be very careful very careful uh, not mm-hmm. to fall into that um that 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 false uh, choice or that false idea uh, and the that, same with each of these the, the same with each of these things being um black uh, may be an aspect of somebody's identity maybe to a greater or lesser extent but it cannot be meaning uh just as being a woman you'll notice by the way in each of these i skip the ugliest one because of course if i said uh being uh white may be part of your identity to a lesser or greater extent we would all cringe slightly including myself i i wouldn't want to do that and that's for interesting historical and other reason moral reasons but but and again depends on where you're standing where you're coming from um but and again you'll notice that i say that being a woman may be a part of your identity but i wouldn't lean on that very heavily but but i'd be careful about saying you know your identity as a man perhaps less so than on the racial one in any case i mention this just because these are these are category errors which we are being urged to slip into and really the, really what we have to ask the whole time on this is 
what would be the discussions we would be having of meaning if we weren't playing these unwinnable games? And I come back to this this issue. You know, there's one that I actually you mentioned earlier, Camille Paglia. Um, there's one that I cite from uh, Paglia about motherhood, where she makes a very interesting point that I pick up on, which is is why did feminism skip motherhood? Um, well, there's a reason, which is it's such a difficult question. It's so difficult to work out how a woman should be able, as she should be able, to fulfill herself in her career if she so wants to do, to do if she wants to do that, and at the same time become a mother. It's 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 not an obvious easy one, although we often presented as such. And, and, and as I say, and Camille Paglia says, maybe we got on to all of these sort of vengeful, um, often zero-sum issues like wage gap, because we couldn't cope with the motherhood discussion. And and as I say, in, in all of these things, I, I do urge people, why don't we why don't we work out what we should be doing with our time? Yes. Yes, I mean th- those are, are are very important points, and 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 that, that's a very important issue in terms of um, putting something. If if I was putting uh, something smaller to substitute for something bigger, you know. So, so yes, so, yes, and, and um, it, it's not or something. Let me or another. Can I put it another way? Um, taking something, accepting something which is tinny. Mm-hmm. Instead of something rich. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. And 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 as we avoid discussions of, of meanings, um, then we get into these these noisy um, power struggles uh, and and avoid meaningful uh, conversations uh, about life itself. And and this is kind of yeah. what's happening, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, if if you had to sum up uh, your your your, I, I don't want to say the book, but but your argument, you know what, uh, what what is the heart of the case you're making? If 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 you were just to sum sum it up in a couple of sentences to close off, the, the heart of the case is I'm trying to urge people, particularly young people. I'm very lucky in having a lot of young readers uh, um, of my books, uh, particularly it's to young people to say don't fall into the trap you're being invited to fall into. Don't waste your life. This is why you shouldn't. This is why this thing you're being invited to waste your life on is not fruitful. And it is to invite people to do that, spend as little time as possible on this in order to get past it and get onto the things that they and we should all be doing. That's great. Um, do do you have anything, um, any upcoming books or engagements or uh, uh, that the paperback? Oh, that's very kind of you. Asked. The paperback of the Madness of Crowds uh, with a new afterword comes out in May, um, and uh, I am also on tour, including in North America and in and around the UK. I'm doing a twelve city tour i think in the uk in may and june and the dates for that and the venues for all of these ones um all around the world are always on my website which is douglasmurray.net 
Um, and all details are there on the events page. And uh, it's I should just say how much I look forward to meeting members of your audience at these events because there's always a chance for questions, uh, disputation, argument, uh, uh, much more, and a chance to have these and more discussions out in person, which is the bit of my life that I really enjoy. Yes, that's excellent. Uh, if if I can get a chance to uh, go to go out and meet you, I'll, I'll try I to do that myself. Really hope to see you there. Great, great. Well, thank you very much, Douglas. It was a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. That's all for New Books in Politics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic that wants to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.